This morning, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, the book of Mark chapter 3, our scripture reading will come from verses 20 through 30. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. We've been studying through this gospel, the gospel of Mark, as Mark has been presenting Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who is the Christ, and as the popularity of Jesus has grown, so has the opposition to the ministry of Jesus, and it comes to A climax in the conflict that Jesus has with the religious leaders of that day. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. The scriptures read, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again, to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder the house. Truly I say to you that all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, quote, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your goodness in giving us your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand a very difficult portion. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the greatness of your forgiveness. Open the eyes of our heart once again, O God, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. In December of 2006, there was a, a horrible internet-based project called the Blasphemy Challenge. It was put on by a group called the Rational Response Squad, a group of atheists that was founded by Brian Sapient and Rook Hawkins. And the challenge invited people to submit videos on sites such as YouTube or whatever video hosting site there might be and challenge people to post themselves, either blaspheming or denying the existence of the Holy Spirit. And if you did, 
And you were one of the first 1,001 people. You'd receive a free DVD from this particular group. There were a number of well-known atheists that participated, such as the, those in the new atheist crowd, such as the late Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett. The motive behind the challenge that the Rational Response Squad had was their view of what is known as the unpardonable sin, specifically blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the passage that we will be looking at this morning. The sin of blasphemy is a very serious sin, but what is blasphemy? One commentator defines blasphemy as this, which is, I think, a good definition, quote, defiant irreverence, a uniquely terrible sin of intentionally and openly speaking evil against the holy God or defaming or mocking him. The Old Testament penalty for such blasphemy was death by stoning, Leviticus 24.16. In the last days, blasphemy will be an outstanding characteristic of those who rebelliously and insolently oppose God, unquote. We see that as a characteristic of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. It says of the Antichrist, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It is a serious, serious sin, never to be taken lightly. And because of that, it is critical to understand what Jesus is speaking of in this particular text that has been a text that has caused consternation even among believers. So let's begin by looking at the context by which Jesus is speaking these words. Chapter 3, verse 20, and he came home and the crowds gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. You recall the popularity of Jesus. In the previous passage that we looked at, the popularity of Jesus spread throughout all of Israel, from the northwest, Tyre and Sidon, all the way down south, south of Jerusalem and Idumea, to the east of the Jordan River. People were flocking to Jesus. Everyone was coming in the masses and the crowds because of the miracles of Jesus, because of the words of Jesus, because Jesus was a celebrity up in Galilee. All of that time, people were coming to Jesus and their crowds, masses of people, thousands if not tens of thousands of people would come and they crowded Jesus such that he couldn't even sit and have a meal. It, when I read this passage, it reminded me of a couple of Years ago, when I was sitting and I was sitting next to John MacArthur and over a nice lunch, and he was having a meal, and we were talking about extension satellite seminary sites. He was about halfway through his meal when they called him up to speak, and he leans over and says something to the effect of, "I never get to finish my meal at these things." And the first thought I confess to you, I thought, "Oh." May, may I have your dessert? 
Obviously, he wasn't going to eat it. It was a good lunch. He only had half of it. This particular situation, Jesus could not even sit to have a meal. The crowds continued to come. They packed out the place, wherever he was. They were pressing against him. He had gone out to the Galilee and the sea that was right there, and still people crowded around him, such that what? Verse 21, when his own people heard of this, his own people heard of this. His own people, who were they? They were the people who were his family. Some of, your, some of your, your translations might say his friends, King James or RSV might say his friends, but I think it's more accurate, the NIV, which translates it as his family, or the NAS, which is more generic, those who are with him, because in light of verse 31, 32, his family comes. His family comes in order to rescue him from this crowd, to take custody over him, for they were saying he's lost his senses. Now, I don't think that his mother thought that he lost his senses. His mother very well knew who he was. Mary knew. She was told that by the angel. Early on, when she was about to give birth, she was told by the angel that you would bear a son, you would bear a son, and he would be great, and he would be the Messiah, and she very well knew. But his brothers, on the other hand, his brothers didn't believe who he was. In fact, John chapter 7, verse 5 says, for not even his brothers were believing him. They didn't come around until later on. Now, to paint a picture of what the context of this passage is, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. This is the parallel passage to what is happening here that gives a little bit more color to the context. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 and following. It tells us of what was happening as Jesus was being crowded by the people. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that his mute, the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed. And they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? There's this large crowd, and Jesus had just healed this demonically possessed man who was blind and could not talk. And in healing him, he once again displayed the power that only the Son of God could display, power over the supernatural realm and power over the natural realm, both in a demonstration such that it says the people were amazed. And that's a key word because it communicates this idea of being completely astounded, or some might see it in the sense of beside oneself with amazement and wonder. Or one commentator translates it and says it literally means to be literally knocked out of your senses. In other words, this particular miracle, this particular miracle to this particular individual who was demonically possessed, who couldn't speak, was blind, was such that it was overwhelmingly persuasive and powerful as to who Jesus was. It seems as if this passage in Matthew chapter 12 tells us of this particular miracle being unlike some of the other ones that he had done. And the effect of this miracle was that everyone who saw it were thinking, could this be the son of David? That is a phrase that is used in the Old Testament, a reference to the Messiah, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that we have been waiting for? 
And it is in this instance, in this high point of Jesus' popularity that brought about the greatest accusation from the religious leaders of Israel. The blasphemous accusation, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. The idea was that Jesus was the Messiah, was what people were wondering after they saw in amazement the miracle that he had just done. But it didn't amaze those who were the religious leaders, these scribes who had come, and they chose instead to recoil and react with a poisonous lie that would come out of their mouths because their hearts had already been filled with hatred and anger. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, after Jesus had healed the man with a withered hand, the Pharisees, it said, went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. See, this was far beyond. This was far beyond the early times of his ministry when they were skeptics, and then they were critics, and then they were vocal opponents, and now they were incensed that Jesus had risen to such a level of popularity that threatened their own beliefs. They wanted him dead. He was continually badgered by these religious leaders. They were always after him. The Bible says, some of these scribes, it says, came down from Jerusalem. He was up in Galilee. That's a, if you avoid Samaria and you don't go through Samaria, it's about a 100-mile journey. You walk 100 miles or donkey or whatever it might be to travel in order to see what Jesus is up to. And to the scribes, the miracle was never in question. All of the miracles of Jesus was never a question. Jesus was never questioned as to, well, did this miracle really happen? Or was there a trickster to this? Or whatever it might be. No, the miracles were plain. They were immediate. They were so obvious that only, there were only going to be two options. Either this miracle had come by the power of God or it had come by the power of Satan. And they chose the latter because they concluded this could not be from God. And they accused Jesus of being possessed, of doing this by the power of Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul was the chief pagan deity in the city of Ekron, a Philistine city, Beelzebul. And the Israelites would make fun of the Philistine god, Beelzebul, and they call him Beelzebub, in order that they might call him, well, he's the lord of the flies. And later on, it became a euphemism for Satan. In their eyes, they were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the ruler of demons. They accused Jesus of being possessed and empowered by Satan himself. The exact opposite of what was true was their accusation that Jesus was possessed by Satan himself. In the light of all of Jesus' miracles, in the light of Jesus' profound teaching, in the light of all that Jesus had done, empowering, casting out demons and power over the supernatural realm, as well as healing that which was of illnesses and sicknesses of all the people that would come. They ascribed to Jesus that which was of Satan, not of God. 
That is what they accused Jesus of. It was a denial that was blinded by their own hatred for Jesus because they already had it in their hearts. They wanted Jesus dead. It's not because of the evidence. It was because of their own bias. And that is how it is with many people. They reject God. They reject Jesus, not because of the evidence, but because of their hatred for Christ. And they spewed out these hateful words about God in the flesh Blind to their own spiritual condition. Now the response of Jesus was this in Matthew 12, 25. And knowing their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And likely this kind of implies that they were maybe not exactly really close to Jesus. Maybe they were on the fringe or whatever it was. He knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. And Mark, they also, it says, they were saying it. They were thinking it, they were saying it, and it seems to indicate there where they were. Jesus began to answer them, began to answer them in parables or analogies, called them to himself, his disciples that is, and he began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, this is a general axiom that Jesus points out in, the, in their absurdity of what they are saying. Jesus had spent a significant amount of time healing people, casting out demons, teaching people. The crowds were coming. Thousands of people had witnessed the power of Jesus. He was freeing demonically possessed people, freeing them from their bondage, and it would have been a terrible tactic Who would have ever thought it would be a terrible tactic that he was doing all of this, that Satan is behind this? It would be a ludicrous idea because any group, any kingdom that has internal division within itself is going to collapse. It will implode. It cannot stand. Even the demonic kingdom, Jesus says, will fail and fall if it is divided in its goals. It will eventually find its demise. It will not succeed. Verse 26, if Satan rises up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. No kingdom, no endeavor will be able to succeed if there is internal division. And that is not the case here. Jesus makes his point. Verse 27, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds a strong man, then he will be able to plunder his house parable is this. If you're going to break in and steal, you're going to break into a strong man's house, you'd better be stronger than the one who is in there. You'd better be able to overcome whoever is in there. And perhaps those who remember the writings of Isaiah might look to Isaiah 49, 24, where it says, can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued, for I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. Jesus' parable points out that it is God, it is God who has the power over those who hold captive 
people, who hold captive people. It is God who drives out these demonically possessed people, who drives the demons out of them. It is God who gives them freedom. It is God who gives them healing. It is God who rescues them, only God. And there is Jesus, and Jesus only could do such a thing. And he underscores his deity. He underscores his power. He underscores his authority by the mere fact that he has done this time and time and time again. And in this particular miracle, it amazed people to such an extent they began wondering, is this the Messiah? And the answer would be yes. Only Jesus could do such a thing. But you, religious leaders, don't bow your even thoughts and will to the truth. Therefore, verse 28, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whatever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. This particular passage has caused a lot of anxiety because of its misinterpretation or misapplication. So in your mind's eye, if you place yourself amidst the people and you're hearing Jesus say these words, all sin to you, truly I say to you, amen, amen, it says, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. It is a reiteration of the truth that we all know. That God is a forgiver of sins. For 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even the Apostle Paul was thankful to God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, he says, Even though I, I, he says, was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which were found in Christ Jesus. Paul was a blasphemer, yet Paul was forgiven. But it's verse 29 and 30 that are a cause of consternation. For it says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now clearly, the passage speaks of a specific eternal sin that Jesus is referring to. So exactly what is this eternal sin? What exactly is referenced here by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Jesus is specifying a particular sin in verse 30. Here in this passage of the chapter, Mark chapter 3 clarifies it for us. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The eternal sin, which is not specified in the book of Matthew chapter 12, eternal sin is specifically the accusation that Jesus has an unclean spirit. And in its context, it is the accusation that Jesus was possessed by Satan and doing all of these things by the power of Satan. But Jesus was doing all of these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. He himself was always completely filled by the Spirit of God, completely empowered by the Spirit of God, yielding himself in humility to the Spirit of God that the Spirit of God would do all of these things. 
And yet in the face of overwhelming evidence that Jesus would do these things and all the overwhelming evidence of what Jesus would say in the demonstration of miracle upon miracle upon miracle by the Spirit of God, both over the supernatural and the natural, they possessed, these religious leaders, the law and the prophets, they knew what the Word of God would say. And yet in the presence of God himself, they accused Jesus, the Son of God, of being possessed by Satan himself. And in the obstinance of their heart, in the hatred that blinded them, the Jewish leaders would condemn themselves as unrepentant, rebellious, guilty of this eternal sin because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to attribute the presence of God and the witnesses of all of his miracles to attribute to Jesus the complete opposite of what was true. That is to say, what they were saying was that it came by the power of Satan. Jesus was in effect saying, if any of you, denial and the hardness of your heart, you won't find forgiveness either. Anyone, any one of you, he says to that crowd, the religious leaders, whoever it was, they were the ones who accused him. This would be an eternal sin. In the presence of Christ, to accuse Jesus of doing all these things by the power of Satan. So some might ask, well, can that be committed today? The answer is no. The answer is no. No one can commit this specific sin that is specified by Jesus himself. No one can commit this particular unpardonable sin because Jesus isn't here. Jesus is not doing miracle and miracle upon people and displaying his power in the same way as it was then. One author writes this, and it helps to clarify. While blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a sin, the blasphemy challenge fails to understand what precisely is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or unpardonable sin. Denying the existence of the Holy Spirit is not the unpardonable sin. Saying certain words that are insulting towards the Holy Spirit is not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Biblically speaking, the the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was witnessing Jesus perform a miracle and attributing the power to Satan instead of the Holy Spirit. The specific blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, cannot be committed today. The only unpardonable sin today is denying and hard-hearted rejection of the salvation that is available through Jesus Christ. God can and will forgive any sin, but his offer of forgiveness it's only available in this life. I remember inviting someone to church many years ago, and they said, no, I don't think so. I don't think I can. You don't know all of the things I've done. Not with all of the things I've done. That is exactly the person who needs to come to Christ. Because a person doesn't need to be perfect in order to come to Christ because Christ will forgive any and all sins. One author writes, no matter how severe the sin, God can forgive it. The worst conceivable sin would be to kill God's own son. And that, while he was here on earth for the very purpose of providing salvation from sin and the way to eternal life, nothing could be possibly more heinous, vicious, and wicked than that. 
And of course, killing him is exactly what men did to the Son of God. Yet, while hanging on the cross and about to die, Jesus prayed and affirmed the forgiving mercy available to his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The degree of sin does not forfeit forgiveness because even killing the Son of God was forgivable. Nor does the volume of sin end the possibility of mercy. A 70-year-old profligate who has lived a life of debauchery, stealing, lying, profanity, blasphemy, and immorality is just as forgivable as a 7-year-old who has done nothing worse than normal childhood naughtiness. Nor does the kind of sin cancel grace. In Scripture, we find God forgiving idolatry, murder, gluttony, fornication, adultery, cheating, lying, homosexuality, covenant-breaking, blasphemy, drunkenness, extortion, every kind of sin imaginable. He forgives self-righteousness, which is the deceiving sin of thinking that one has no sin. He even forgives the sin of rejecting Christ. Otherwise, no one could be saved because before salvation, everyone, to some degree, is a Christ rejecter. There is no forgiveness of even the smallest sin unless it is confessed and repented of. But there is forgiveness of even the greatest sin if those divine conditions are met. Unquote. God calls us to a life of repentance from our sin. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is spoken of in this particular passage cannot be committed today because it was specific to the accusation that the religious leaders had leveled against Jesus. God calls us to repentance, as it says in Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dwelt with us, dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. God already knows all things. God already knows what you have done. God already knows what you will do. God already knows the sin that we hide in our hearts, hoping that no one would ever know, but God knows. And he desires that you come and confess and turn from that sin because when you do, you will find the gracious mercy of God. For Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God desires that we come and confess our sins so that he might lavish upon us his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. For the Bible promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we do, Psalm 103 tells us, Verse 12, for as the far as the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. 
Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God does not hold our sins against us when we are repentant. God doesn't hang them over our head. God doesn't come back a month, six months later, a year later and say, remember when you sinned against me with that? Remember when you did these things? No. When we confess and repent of our sins, God removes them as far as east is from the west, and there is no more condemnation. Someday when we die and we go to heaven, God is not going to have a film reel by which we all look and all are watching all of the sins that we've done. No. We're not going to go up there and somehow be ashamed and hang our head because of all the sins that we've done. No. That might be... They will be held against those who are not believers, but those who are believers, God says in the book of Romans, for now there is no more condemnation, no more condemnation. God desires to forgive. God desires to have you walk rightly with him. You recall in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son who went to his father and shamed his father shamed his whole family, brought disgrace upon himself as well by asking for his share of the inheritance, in effect saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. And he takes that share of the inheritance and he goes to a foreign land and he squanders all of that in licentious living until he has nothing left and he is brought low and he thinks to himself, Oh, my father's house, even the servants are treated better. So he goes back. What happens in the story? When he is far away, it says that the father runs to him. Before his son can even confess, father embraces him. Father has every right to punish that son, to shame that son, to do whatever he wishes, even disown the son. But no, he runs because he desires that relationship once again. And so too, when we sin against God, we have broken our relationship with God. That relationship with God is broken and God desires that that would be mended once again because God is a forgiving God. God is a God that desires that we come to him, that we might find mercy and compassion at his throne of grace, as Hebrews 4 would tell us. Now, does God simply forgive and say that sin is just no more? The answer is no. No. Somebody, somebody has to pay that price. That is Jesus on the cross. I'll give you an analogy. Joshua Butler in his book, The Pursuing God, he writes about the housing crisis that had hit the United States because of banking practices, because of executives, because of corporate corruption. It really rocked the global economy. So you can imagine to yourself, he says, imagine that Jesus, in the aftermath of that housing crisis, installed as the new CEO for one of these massive corporations guilty of the crisis. 
The old CEO is out the door here. Jesus is installed as the new CEO. And Jesus is personally innocent. He wasn't behind the wheel when the ship got sunk or steered into the rocks. But there's a huge debt. Bank of America alone owed $17 billion. But someone had to pay the costs. And here's actually what happened. In the aftermath of the crisis, the banks were deemed too big to fail. The government forgave the debt, covering the most expensive bailout in human history. And though the banking industry had caused massive damage, the debt was forgiven, but the debt didn't go away. There was a debt that still needed to be paid. So how was it paid? It was paid by the American people. Someone always has to eat the debt. Someone always has to pay the price. And at the cross, Christ paid for your sins and for mine. That is the just and righteous thing to do. You know, it's been said that the White House gave Wall Street the most expensive bailout in human history. But the most expensive bailout came at the cross when Jesus paid for that sin. And because he paid for that sin, that forgiveness is available to you that God would not hold that debt against you if you were to come simply to the foot of the cross. Confess your sin. Be right with God and walk with God because God already knows what you have done. There is no sin that God will not forgive to one who is repentant. That is why we can sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. If there's any unconfessed sin in your life, I encourage you to seek in your own heart. Ask of God to confess your sin. Ask him to cleanse your heart and make your life right with him. You'll find joy and freedom that comes when God in His grace extends His compassion and forgives you of your sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. Father, for your word. You've called us to come to your throne of grace that we might find compassion and grace in time of need. I pray, Father, all of us struggle. All of us struggle with sin. And some may be caught in the vice of their sin. And I pray for them that, Lord, you would help them. Whatever vice it may be, whatever addiction, whatever repetitive sin they may commit, I pray, Father, that they might turn to you and that you would help them, Father. By your Spirit, help them to overcome that sin. That they might give you glory and honor, that they might walk rightly with you, that they might have clean hands and a pure heart. Perhaps, oh God, it is a spirit even of unforgiveness, of bitterness. Perhaps it might be anger. Perhaps it might be some adulterous thoughts or immorality, pornography, 
Perhaps it might be envy. Perhaps it might be jealousy. Perhaps it might be continued thoughts of worldliness, love of the things of the world. Perhaps, O oh God, it might be sins of idolatry where we have set people or things more important in our heart before you. Father, in our weakness we pray, help us, Lord, to walk with you and to understand and know, Lord, you are a compassionate and gracious God who desires that we turn from our sin and pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen.